chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You can find that on page 151 if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. This morning we're going to be looking at the very long passage of verses 4 and 5. So Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. A couple months ago, Ellie had a friend take the vows that we said at our wedding and arrange them as two prints that we could frame and then hang in above our bed in our room. Now, if, if I were a good husband, I would tell you that uh, those were already hung and taken care of and not laying next to the side of the bed, but they, they are there nonetheless. It's something that Ellie has wanted to do uh, for a while as a reminder of the commitment that we made to each other almost eight years ago now when we got married. Marriage is a special, sacred institution. It has been with us since the beginning. When God made Adam and Eve, when he brought Eve to Adam, saying that it was not good for man to be alone. Marriage is special, not just because it provides companionship, but because in a marriage, a man and a woman become one. It is sacred because it was instituted by God. And it is also sacred because, as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, that it is meant to refer to the mystery of the relationship of Christ to the church. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving his life for her. And wives, likewise, are called to submit to their husbands, working powerfully and humbly to see their husbands grow in holiness and Christ-likeness themselves. The two are meant to work for the other's good and holiness. Marriages, as, as, as a consequence, marriages are covenants. They are not contracts. They are treated as contracts in our day and age, but they are not. Contracts are drawn up to ensure that we get something from someone else. Covenants are drawn up so that we give of ourselves to someone else. If you were to come and read the vows that Ellie and I made to each other, you would see that the promises we made were to give of ourselves to each other, to be loyal to each other, to forfeit certain rights and freedoms that we had before we were married, to give those over to each other, to live other-focused. To put it quite simply, we promised to love each other in whatever circumstances until death separates us. Love is the essence of those vows. Those vows put into words our commitment to each other. They hold us accountable. We swore them before many witnesses and before God. So those words have weight. We have both said that this is what we promise to do, to live towards each other with God having made us one. When God called the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he called them in a covenant. He called them to be his holy people. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, formalizing his relationship with them. As we look at the law and its place within that, we see that it it states the commitment of God to his people and their commitment to them, similar to the way our vows formalized what we said we were going to, how we were going to live towards each other. God called Israel and redeemed them to be his people, and he gave himself to them to be their God, 
to keep them and to prosper them, to have a deep and abiding relationship, to make his glory dwell with them so that the whole world would see and know that he is God. As God made his commitment to Israel, he also made it clear how they were then to live in this covenant. They were to live as reflections of him. They were to be holy as he is holy. They were to submit themselves to his lordship and live in obedience to his holy commands, starting with this one, the heart of the law, which we have in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. If you will, please stand with me as I read God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you've probably heard that the golden rule is to do to others as you would have them do to you. Indeed, that is how Jesus teaches us to live, explaining that that rule sums up the law and the prophets. But even as Jesus explains the why of what we... As as Jesus presses into that and as he teaches, he explains that the why of what we do matters as much, if not more so, than the what of what we do. And so while Jesus says that this rule sums up the law and the prophets, he also taught that the law and the prophets depend on this command, which we have just read, the command of love. Love is the reason we are to do to others what we would have them to do to us. Love is the way we are called to live and to walk in a right relationship with God. Love was the essence of the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. It is the essence of the new covenant that we have received in Christ Jesus. And that brings us to our main idea this morning, the main idea of our passage, which is a simple command, but a profound command. Love the Lord. Love the Lord. Now, as we look at this command we see that it breaks up very nicely and very conveniently into three key sub-commands, all stacking on each other. And the order of this, as we'll see, is very important. So first we see that we are called and commanded to hear the word of the Lord, to listen. Second, we are called to know the Lord. And third, we are called to love the Lord with all that we are. So those are our three points this morning. Hear the word of the Lord, know the Lord, and love the Lord with all that you are. As we look into each of these three instructions, I really have two goals this morning. First, I want to challenge you to commit yourself to obeying these commands. Second, I want to show you how Jesus, as our Savior, has fulfilled this command perfectly in every way. And in bringing those two together, I pray that God will give us eyes to see how we can only hope to keep this command by wholly relying on his grace through his son towards us. So let's begin with the first part of this command, to hear the word of the Lord. In order to obey God, 
we must first listen to him. To obey God, you must listen. God has made himself known in his word. And so it is that we cannot say that we love God if we do not also love his word. Neither can we say that we are walking in obedience to God if we do not first stop to listen to his commands. It's easy to come to a passage like this and sort of skip to the end, to the part where we are told to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind. But the reality is that the first instruction of the greatest command is a command to listen. Hear, O Israel. Now, what I, as I say that, I want you to understand this is more than just a lead-in to the good stuff. This is not just a mere introduction. No, this is where it all starts. If we're to relate to God rightly, if we're to know him as he is, and if we are to love him the way he ought to be loved, the way he commands us to do, we have to begin first by listening to what he has to say about himself. There's a story about three blind men who lived in a certain town together. A day, on one day, a circus came to town, and the men heard about a strange animal called an elephant. Having never encountered an elephant before, they decided that they would go and see what this animal was like. When they arrived, they, they broke out of line and snuck into the tent where the elephant was. And being unable to see, each man began to feel a different part of the animal. One man touched, touched the, the elephant's trunk. And so he said to the others, Ah, an elephant is like a snake. No, said the second man, who was touching the elephant's ear. No, no, the elephant is like a fan. The third man, who was touching the elephant's leg, corrected both of them, saying, No, you're both wrong. An elephant is a tree. Convinced that he was right and the others were wrong, the men began to argue and dispute with each other about what the elephant was like until finally it came to blows. They got into a fight with each other. The story is meant to teach us a lesson about perspective. In a sense, each man had a piece of the truth. An elephant's trunk is not unlike a snake, its ears are not unlike a fan, and its legs are not unlike a tree. But an elephant is more than all of its parts and pieces. It is not a snake, it is not a fan, it is not a tree. It is an elephant. There are some who want to, to say that this, in a sense, is what is happening when people talk about God. They say that the different religions that are out there are like those men making truth claims about God, arguing with each other about what God is like, but never actually a being able to see the whole of who God is or being able to say accurately what he is like. So then they argue that all claims about God are equally acceptable because we cannot really know God at all. He is beyond us. But the story changes if we add a fourth man to it, the ringmaster. This man lives with the elephant. He is not blind. He sees the whole elephant. He knows that the elephant and the elephant knows him. And he, upon hearing the collisions happening in the tent, is able to step in and say what the elephant actually is. He's able to tell these blind men about the elephant because he's not blind. He knows the truth. He dispels the mystery. He brings light to the situation. That man is like God's word. 
You see, unlike an elephant, God is not silent. He has not hidden himself. He has spoken. He has created us to know him, and he has communicated himself to us in a way that while we cannot say that we know God exhaustively, we can say that we know him accurately. This is why the first part of the command that we are given here is to listen to God's word. Without God's word, we're like those blind men groping about in the darkness. Romans 1 describes how though God has made his invisible attributes known in his creation, though his eternal power and his divine nature are clearly perceived in the world that he has made, mankind in its rebellion against him has become futile in its thinking. And because of sin, our foolish hearts have been darkened. We have become blind. Claiming to be wise, Paul explains, mankind became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So considering what Paul says in Romans 1 and considering what Moses tells us here in Deuteronomy 6, can you see why the first part of this command is to listen? The command is to listen because unless we listen, we will have false ideas and false views of who God is. He is higher than we are, and we cannot Go and he's not able, not able to go with a, a test tube and test him to see what he's made out of because he's spirit. We have no power to know God unless he speaks. We have no power to know God unless he reveals himself. But the good news is that God has spoken. He has revealed himself. 2 Timothy Tells us in 2 Timothy, Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable by, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that, so this is a purpose, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you see, as Paul is speaking to Timothy, he reminds him that scripture has one source. It is God. God speaks. And because Scripture is God's word, it carries the authority of God. We trust it and entrust ourselves to it because God never lies and because he has revealed himself to us in his word. God means for us to listen to his word because he means for us to know him through it and to live by it. That is why the first part of this command is a command to listen to what he has said. If the, if the parable of the blind men and the elephant teaches us anything, it teaches us not to trust too much, not to lean too much on our own understanding. It teaches us why we need God to reveal himself to us, not only through his power and his work in the world. That declares the glory of God. The Psalms say that the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth beneath declares his handiwork. We see God's 
intelligence and his beauty and his majesty and the complexities of the world he has designed. But it is not enough. We need him to declare himself to us through his word. Logic and reason can only get us so far. As we look at the world in its beauty, in its order, in its design, it is plain to us to see that none of this happened by chance. Order does not simply come out of disorder. Design does not come without an intelligent designer. There is beauty and there is goodness in the world pointing us to the one who is the source of it all. Philosophers have understood for centuries that our world requires one who is a first cause. There are many arguments, philosophical arguments, for why we should understand that God exists. But there is only one way for us to truly know God. To truly know God, we must listen. We must know him through his word. In John 1, verse 18, we read that old dilemma which says, No one has ever seen God. Now, if the passage ended there, we would have little reason to think we could know anything about God, but it doesn't. No, John goes on to say, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John goes on to show that this one who makes the Father known to us, who restores the relationship between God and man, who who takes the blindness and removes it, who shines light into the darkness so that we may know God even as he knows us, is Jesus Christ. This is why John calls Jesus the Word of God, because he is God, because he does the work of God, and because as the Word of God, Jesus took on flesh, fulfilling God's promise of redemption, dying and rising to save us from our sin, granting the right to all who believe in him to be called children of God. Jesus is that proverbial fourth man who makes the mystery of God known to us. He fulfills God's spoken word and speaks to us as the divine man, making God known, breaking down that barrier of sin that separated us. So to to know God, we must come to his word. We must come to Christ, and we must listen. Without listening to God's word, there can be no action. There can be no love. So brothers and sisters, if if you would seek to know God and understand him, if you would seek to have willing hands and willing feet, then you must begin by having ears that are eager to hear and hearts that are eager to listen and obey. So we see that the first command of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, is a a command to listen. The second is a command to know the Lord. As we look at this command, we, we see that there's a very tight relationship between listening to God's word and knowing God. I, I've I kind of spilled over to my second point, my first point, right? But they are, they're just that tightly, intricately woven. The second part of the command is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So having just called us to action, to hearing, to listening, the very next thing that Moses says to the people is something about God. What what am I supposed to listen to, Moses? The Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is so much in this middle section. 
by, by declaring God's oneness, Moses is, is, is saying, he's speaking in a profound truth, something that I think we could, we could literally spend all day on, but I have other things to tell you. So as we think about what the oneness of God is, the oneness of God can refer to many things, but first and most important to this context, it refers to the way that the Lord is exclusive. The Lord is exclusive. In Mark chapter 12, the scribe who, who asked Jesus about this commandment says, uh, as Jesus tells him that this is the greatest command, says, you are right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. Now, Jesus commends this man and tells him he is not far from the kingdom of God. So I take it that to mean we are meant to understand that, that when Moses says that the Lord is one. He is talking about God and his exclusivity. There are no other gods besides the Lord. There are no powers like him. He alone has made the world. He alone is self-sufficient. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He has no beginning or end. He holds the world in his hands, directing it in all of its affairs. He is the judge of all the earth. There is no one like God, no rival powers, no threat to him, no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is, that is what it means for God to be one. Along with that exclusivity, the oneness of God also describes his nature and his position. He reigns over all things. He is one in glory and majesty and holiness. He is one in purity and power. He is one in unity. He's not composed of parts or pieces. He is one in that he never changes. By understanding the oneness of God, we see that there is nothing that is worthy of our, nothing else that is worthy of our affection and praise like him. We see that there is no room for idols in our hearts. By seeing the oneness of God, we learn why we must not look to the world to satisfy us. We see why we must entrust ourselves to him and to no one else. And that brings us to the second thing that, God, that Moses says about God here. He says that God is personal. So the first thing he says is that he says that God is one, but he also connects it in to show us that God is personal to us. Moses says, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is the Lord of all the earth, but he is also the one who called Israel out from the nations out from enslavement to be his people and to be their God. The Lord of all the earth who breathes out stars, who, who made the world and all that it is in it, who fashioned Leviathan and taught him to play in the depths of the sea, who appoints ocean currents, the phases of the moon, who created the sun, that same God knows us and he means for us to know him. Does that, I don't know if that, does that boggle your mind at all? I mean, honestly, like the pictures, you go on Google this afternoon and go look at some of the pictures that are being taken by some of the telescopes we have. We have satellite telescopes that are taking pictures into deep space. It is incredible. Do you know that that was there before we had the telescope? Like We didn't create that. Most of the earth is unexplored because it's under the sea. And every time someone goes down there, they find something that they hadn't found before. And they go, wow, 
Our whole view of the world has changed. Well, God's view wasn't changed. He made it. He purposed it. It's his pleasure to do so. They exist for him. And the smallest I've ever felt was traveling the other side of the world and running into people, millions of people, who had no idea that I existed. That'll make you feel small. They didn't know I existed. I didn't know they existed. And they're living their lives. And I thought to myself, well, how can I have any significance in the midst of this? It's because God knows me and made me and purposed me and intends for me to know him. Our view of God is oftentimes way too small. We forget that God is one and that he is ours. He is personal. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. God is not a God of our own making. He is Yahweh. He is one. He is perfect in splendor and majesty. He is holy. And he means for us to know him. There is no higher calling than that, friends. We come to know God through his inspired word, and most importantly, we come to know God through having a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. In John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father, and this is what he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Did you see that? Eternal life is not just living forever. Eternal life is eternal in quality because it knows God and it knows his son. As we look at this again, we see the centrality of Christ making God known to us. The reason Jesus is able to speak to us and make God known to us is because of who he is. He is one with the Father, and the Father is one with him. Everything he speaks, John 12, bears authority because he speaks the words of the Father. He speaks as the Son of God, one in nature with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And it's through his work as the word of God that we are then able to receive life and light. The oneness of God is that foundation for our salvation because unless Jesus is one with God in nature, he could never offer a sacrifice for sin that would be able to atone for our iniquities. The oneness of God and the distinction of the three divine persons is what paves the path for us to experience the redeeming love of God and for us in turn to love him as we ourselves have been loved. Friends, God is to be known. 
To know him, we must listen to him. To approach him, we must come to him through Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Within this command to listen and to know God in his oneness is a command also to know God in his triunity through unity with God the Son. It's because of that that we are able to receive what Christ purchased for us through his death and resurrection, his divine sonship and eternal life. It's, it's Jesus who makes God known to us and who makes us able to love as we ought to love. And that's what brings us to our third point, that we are called to love God with all that we are. Now, before I met Ellie, if you'd asked me, oh, Philip, what do you envision your wife to be like? I, I had all these ideas, right? And I will tell you that before I met Ellie, I had a certain kind of love for her, or at least I thought that I did. I had this idea that somewhere out there, God had, I trust in the sovereignty of God, right? I had this idea that somewhere out there, God has provided a woman for me who's going to be my wife. And I'm praying, God, please, please let me have a wife. Because I don't know that either, right? So I had this idea in my head of this future wife who would do certain things and, and be certain ways and check certain boxes. And I, I prayed diligently for Ellie, not knowing her. Now, and I, I thought, I realized as I prayed for her that if I was going to pray for her, I better pray for myself to be the kind of man that she deserved. And then one day, I actually met Ellie. I learned the sound of her voice. I learned the shape of her face. I learned her preferences, her quirks, her desires, her goals. Looking back on the way I felt about my future wife, I think those affections were real. But they were really affections of longing. Affections that had, that had, that had to give away to actual love. Because now I don't just love the idea of having a wife. I love Ellie. The first two parts of this command, listening to God so that we may know God, come together in verse 5, teaching us how we're meant to respond to God. Moses says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So we've had this call to listen We've had this call to know, and we've had this call now to respond. The picture here is, is a call to love God with all that we are. In listening to God, we are to know God, and in knowing God, we are to love God with our whole being. To help us understand the quality of the sort of love that God has called us to have, Moses talks about loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and with all our might. In the Hebrew mindset, the heart was the seat of the intellect and the emotional side of who we are. It kind of takes, the Greeks had this idea of separating the thoughts and the intellect and the, and the mind, and the heart was at the seat of emotion. Well, the Hebrews just pushed that together. So um, as, that's why when we get to Mark 12, Jesus, when he quotes this, he includes the mind to say that we are to love God both intellectually and emotionally. The soul is described as the part of us that is invisible, the part of us that makes us really who we are, including our will and our sensibilities. Our might, as you 
can imagine, has to do with our strength, with how we devote ourselves to this. We're to strive with every fiber in our being to love God. So when we put those three things together, we can clearly see the point that Moses is driving at for in how we are to know God and how we are to respond to him, which is to love him with all that we are, with our thoughts and our desires, with our actions and with the very seat of who we are. The thing that is meant to define the people of God is that they love him and they know him. Given that we were made by God for God, that he is the highest and greatest good, that there are no rival gods beside him, and that he has purposed us to know him and be satisfied in him, the only right response that the scriptures tell us we should have to God is to love him with all that we are. God is to rank first in our affections. All other loves flow from this love for him. What Moses has done here is he has given us the structure of right worship, the structure really of how we're supposed to live. We are called to hear God's word, that we may know God. We are called to know God, that we may love God. This is the right order of worship. When this gets reversed, we get in big trouble. You see, loving the concept of God is not the same as loving God himself. Just as loving the concept of your spouse is not the same as loving your spouse. God is God. We are not. The Lord did not get elected to his position as God. He is. He did not earn his divinity. He was. He is. And he is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega. God remains God whether we accept him or not. When a person says that they love God, but then they object to something he has clearly revealed about himself and his word, they show that they do not really love God at all. They love a God of their own making. They love a God that was created in their own image. And I hear people say, well, my God would never do that. I would never believe in a God like that. We are treading on truly dangerous because you don't make God God. He is. And he's to be reverenced and loved for who he is. The greatest height of human rebellion is to demand that God ought to fit the mold that we have set out for him, that he must conform himself to who we would have him to be rather than conforming ourselves to who he is. That is why the order of this verse matters so much. Because in order to truly love God, we must love him not not only with the whole of who we are, but we must also love him for who he is. You cannot love what you do not know, and you cannot know God unless you are willing to submit yourself to what he has said about himself. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that you are seeing why it is so important we must listen to God and why we must strive to know God. It is because without these first two, we cannot truly love God as he's meant to be loved. What's more, we cannot say that we have truly listened to God or truly know God if we do not love God. In Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus says that many will call him Lord, 
Many who did many great things in his name, who prophesied, who did mighty works, who even cast out demons in his name, will be told to depart from him because he never knew them. He says, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of God. God's will is that we would listen to the testimony concerning his Son. God's will is that we would know him through his Son. And God's will is that we would love him with all that we are and believe in him. So brothers and sisters, as we consider this, the greatest commandment, a command that calls us to listen to God's word, to know God in his word, and to love God with all that we are, let us reflect on our own lives and ask ourselves, are, are we loving God in half measures? Are you loving God in half measures? Are, are we serving Christ and our flesh on the side? Are we seeking to have two masters? You can only have one. God is not a cosmic vending machine as a means to get other blessings. He is the blessing. So ask yourselves this week, are there any ways in which you are holding back in loving God in full measure? Second, ask yourself, are, are, are you compartmentalizing God and making your relationship with him something that is merely part of your life, part of what you do, instead of the whole of what you do. We're commanded to love God with all that we are. Every act we do is meant to be done in the fear of God, in the love of God, in faith and obedience to God, to God's glory. So are you compartmentalizing God and making him just part of your life instead of the whole? Third, have you anchored yourself in faith? Are you trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? You see, the truth is that there is not one person here this morning who can claim to have kept this command. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all loved ourselves. We have all loved other things, but not Christ. Christ fulfilled the law. In love, he came from heaven, taking on humanity. In love, he went to the cross where he bore our sins. In love, he suffered the wrath of God in our place. In love, he allowed his body to be placed in the tomb and rose from the dead on the third day. In love, he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father and is preparing a place for us. In love, he rules and reigns, working all things together until he will come again in love to judge the world and rescue his people. To love God, we must love his son. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So where does that leave, this, leave us? Well, for those of you who are here today, if you haven't trust, trusted in Jesus for your salvation, understand God made you. He loves you. He has given his own son to rescue you from your sin. This command to listen, to know, and to love is for everyone. But it is only possible for us to do that through faith in Christ. So friend, if that's you, hear this command and live. Now for those of you who are here who are believers, then what I would just do is to urge you to take a hard look at your life this week. To pray as you do that God would open your eyes to any places in your life where your love for him needs to grow. And as you do, I also urge you to see the beauty of Christ who makes us able to love as we have been called to love because we love him 
because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this beautiful command, it's also humbling to think about all the ways we have failed to keep it. And yet, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, through Jesus, you have provided for us to redeem us. You have given us new hearts that desire you. You have opened our eyes to see you in your glory. And Lord, we pray that our vision of the world would grow dim, that we would no longer desire those things, but then instead, Father, we would satisfy our hearts wholly in you, that we would come humbly to your word, that we would listen to it, that we would know you as your spirit works in us, and that we would love you with our whole self. Help us to do this, we pray, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen.